want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik, and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, how's it going? Good. It's it's a, a fine morning and I have a cup of tea. Until you had mentioned it before we started recording, I would have completely forgotten that the Emmys happened. So I'm I'm kind of quickly looking up the results. I don't know why I just didn't care this year. I think it's because Hannibal wasn't there. Or because they're the Emmys? I just... <laughs> I got very excited when Brian Cranston won, but the reason I got excited was not that he won, but that's because I've been annoyed since January with this narrative that most critics have been building that, oh, Matthew McConaughey has to win. He's going to win. It's, of course he's going to. It's like, did you guys watch Ozymandias? If they watch Ozymandias, which the Emmy voters, you know, very obviously might not have because <laughs> many of their selections are not based on anything remotely uh, valid to at least my perspective. Uh, for example, some of the various other wins, including Sherlock this year. But uh, if they watch Ozymandias, they have to give it to Brian Cranston. That might not be what happens, but this notion that Matthew McConaughey is so amazing and so he's going to win because he has to win because did you watch True Detective? My answer since January has been, did you watch Ozymandias? So I, I felt validated. Hey, that's good. It was a big big win for Breaking Bad, obviously, because uh, the, the writer of that, Moira Beckett, did win for Ozymandias, and then they got a bunch of the acting nods, and they got the big drama one, so hooray for the end of Breaking Bad. Yep. I, I, there, some people are less than thrilled about that. They feel like it's overrated. For me, I thought that second half of the final season was amazing. Almost every single episode was very good, uh, so I think it's con entirely justified. Um, so... Whether or not there's there's plenty of really good shows out there, really great shows out there, but to to begrudge Breaking Bad wins in what is one of its best stretches of episodes that it ever did, I that seems a bit odd to me. Uh, people more frustrated with the comedies, I get that more. People frustrated with the Emmys in general, just honestly do do what I do now, which is I really I don't care. I, <laughs> I only watched because there were all these tweets going on in my feed and I wanted to be able to put a context to them. So I was so like I couldn't leave during commercial breaks to go get water or, or stuff because the tweets were continuing and that's what I was actually watching. So um I enjoyed the process in that manner this year I would say. You see I really I really like numbers. I really like awards show making predictions stuff like that but uh for this year I guess I was just too either overwhelmed or disenchanted. But, uh, yeah, it's some good results. So it's it's kind of weird how well Sherlock did because that definitely was not its best season. But uh, that whole category is messed up anyway. So. Hey, and again, this the Emmys this year didn't nominate Arrow or Strike Back or Banshee for best stunts. That tells you what they know about various categories. If they can't get that right... Yeah. 
that's embarrassing. Yeah. So I just, just don't care about the Emmys. That's my solution, at, at least. Uh, we, we talked with you guys about the Emmys, or at least I did, uh, quite a bit this week. We also talked with uh, people. Uh, I, I liked our Sundance All-Stars pilots that we were pitching there with Brian. I thought that was pretty fun this week. Uh, the question of the week last week was, Sean? Uh, your occupation, just so we can get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Mario is a content editor at Robocore, and uh, Carl is a graphic designer. He says, note, not the Hannibal kind of graphic. Uh, would have liked to have heard from more of you guys, but, you know, we get it. I, I get it, not wanting to put too much out there. Um, also, let's see, we, <laughs> Brian also made mention of the one does not simply meme, which apparently popped up in the Legends pilot, which was encouraging to hear. Uh, and I talked to Doctor Who with Julia, Elena, Beth... Danny, Alistair, James, Dan, and Catherine, and Selfie with Latoya, James, Sonia, uh, Jason, Stephanie, Paul, and Jape Man. I don't know who you are, Jape Man, but that is an entertaining Twitter handle. Uh, also talked Time of Death with Sonia. I made myself finish Time of Death. Have you ever seen Time of Death yet, Sean? I have not. It's incredibly good, and also it can be difficult to watch. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing documentary series from Showtime um, from last year. And I've been putting off watching the last couple of episodes just sort of passively. And then uh, as I you know, looked at the episodes I've, I had sitting around, I, it was like, yeah, you got to finish it, Kate. You, you love the show. You're very invested in these stories, which is why you don't want to finish these episodes. Because, you know, it's, it's a show that follows, a documentary series that follows people as they prepare to die, who are terminal and are uh, in, the, in the final months, days. Uh, of their life. And so I didn't want to see what I knew was going to happen. Um, but I finally made myself watch it and it was fantastic and emotional and very good. And people should watch time of death. Anyway, so Sonia kind of helps me get through some of that <laughs> this week. Uh, let's see. We also heard from Augustine at the website who said, all right, legend of Korra next week. I, I can't wait. It's a shame. Kate, you haven't gotten around to watching it, knowing the type of sh shows you enjoy. I have a very good feeling that you would love the show and you're probably right. Augustine. Uh, are you excited to be talking legend of Korra, Sean? Very excited. I'm willing to, to trim some of my discussion elsewhere just so I can get in a few words. Absolutely. Uh, well, speaking of trimming, are there any other interactions you want to mention up at the top, or should we just get going? Let's do this. Okay. Uh, at the end of the show, we were talking with Tyler Smith of Battleship Retention and More Than One Lesson about the fantastic one-season wonder, Fishing with John. Uh, you guys got to Even if, you don't, if you're unfamiliar with the show, listen to that DVD shelf, because the show is amazing. I had never heard of it before. And I'm so glad that I've watched it now. That's coming at the end of the show. But for now, let's take a break and come back with our week in comedy and reality. Sports go sports. I promise I really totally care who wins. If there's a net or a hoop or a hole in the ground, I hope they get it in. If they want to go to all the bases, they're supposed to run past a line or whatever. I hope they do that too. Sports go sports. They top their opponents numerically in the allotted time. Let's disenfranchise their audience and see their revenues decline. May the partakers be sturdy and rapid in the spirited energies they exert. May they be victorious in perpetuity. Don't I look cute in this football shirt? Sports go sports. Athletics are number one. Participants are heroes. Go team, yeah. 
in comedy and reality, we're going to talk a little Garfunkel and Oates, Speechless, followed by Married, Invisible Man, and You're the Worst, PTSD. Then we'll go over to reality. I'll talk briefly about Top Chef Masters, Mike Isabella versus Antonio Lafazzo, and then we'll we'll wind things up with, I'm sure, another lengthy chat about So You Think You Can Dance as they announce their, their four finalists. But first, let's go to a happy place with Garfunkel and Oates. I really enjoyed this episode as the... <laughs> As Kate and Ricky try to uh, Little Mermaid, their new romantic prospects. Uh, what did you think of this episode? I definitely enjoyed it. It it's great because the whole premise or the impetus, rather, it it seems like this show takes place in a very surreal world, and so to get that where we meet a character who just does not talk, <laughs> the that scene where they're trying to elicit any information out of the girlfriend was just fantastic and then uh, that obviously leads for the the hook for the rest of the episode um it was wonderful and we got uh tj miller we just had another silicon valley um guest in and you're the worst so it was great to see him as well yeah i thought it was a lot of fun the the different ways that those relationships built i thought were entertaining i liked the uh the the shot of kate thinking back on her interactions with her beau and going you don't know never mind okay i see it i can't really criticize <laughs> you for thinking what I don't want to spoil it in case you love and watch it but I'm I'm finding this show to be utterly delightful I'm really enjoying Garfunkel and Oates three episodes in it's very distinct like type of comedy and I so it's not I don't think it's for everyone but I I'm I'm very happy to be watching it yeah it's much more actually in my wheelhouse than even Portlandia is so um if this goes for a couple seasons, I imagine this will be the IFC show that I actually care about and make time to watch because I only catch Portlandia every now and again. But uh, this was great. TJ Miller's performance was great where he's just trying to get that bartender's attention. And it's just Trish, Trish, Trish <laughs> over and over. That was fantastic. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, um, and another fun song from them as well. Uh, <laughs> let's move on though to the FX comedies first. Married, Invisible Man. Oh, and I should mention the league is back next week. I'll be talking about that. It's premiering uh, on on September third. Haven't had a chance to watch the screener yet, but I've enjoyed the previous season, so hopefully I'll like this coming season as well. But first, Married, Invisible Man. This is one of the episodes that was on the screeners. So uh, I when I started it. it uh, this this week I, I was a little surprised, um, but I, I watched the whole thing again because I thought it was a really fun, enjoyable episode with a good use of all the various characters. What did you think of Invisible Man? Yeah, again, two episodes in a row, I think in a row, that has have used Paul Reiser's character well, or at least better than just having him appear now and again. Um, but the the center of it, the the relationship between our two leads, the specificity of like what fantasy gets him off. I mean, obviously it created a hilarious scenario, um, but I thought that that was also just good writing in terms of playing to that character and um, some of his self-conscious aspects as well. Um, so, you know, reasons why he, he doesn't want to see any, any lesbian born because he feels like a third wheel. Um, yeah, that was... That was solid. I just, uh, I, I so enjoyed his pi r squared, his correction of the math, uh, which I thought was delightful. It was just so much fun. And, uh, yeah, just the handling, the paralleling of the various storylines worked really well. And I'm, uh, I'm surprised at the level of thought and depth being given the Jenny Slate-Paul Reiser relationship. 
and uh, the way that that's really been building. And I think both on Married and You're the Worst, there are comedies with different, I mean, obviously You're the Worst is a more straightforward, more laugh kind of comedy, but um, laugh out loud kind of comedy. But in both of these series, we're seeing very dramatic relationships develop with this these two periphery characters Lindsay on on you're the worst and uh here jenny slate's character so uh, i'm concerned i want them all to be yeah. happy it's it's a mad men ending we get somebody asking her at the end of the episode are you alone so that, that doesn't lead to good places yeah i'm invested i'm very glad to be as invested as i am as am i yeah. Well, let's move on to You're the Worst, PTSD. Uh, so such a lovely uh, Lindsay being terrible episode here. Uh, what, what did you think? Well, let's talk Lindsay for a second, who thinks that Susan B. Anthony made an airplane disappear. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good thing she's she doesn't have a job. <laughs> yeah. This was, again... Yeah, I saw the title of the episode and had thought that they were going to go into Edgar's story because obviously he has uh, post-traumatic stress, but um, centered, again, really well on our central relationship and uh, it seems like finally it is getting them officially together. So it, it we're what, about halfway through the first season, a little bit more than halfway, and um, it'll be... I guess interesting to see if they maintain that because this is the problem with a show like this that has uh, the premise of two people who don't think that they should be together, although they really should. It's, it could just be a will they, won't they, break them up, put them back together kind of scenario. But I don't know. You're the worst. The writing has been really clever, and also like like you had said, laugh out loud funny. So I've got some optimism in terms of how they handle that relationship. The one part of the episode that didn't work for me was their back and forth, sarcastic, well, then maybe we should be exclusive thing. Because it just, it was too on the nose and obvious, and the tone of that scene really didn't work. It just felt, it's something that we've seen before, at least I've seen several times before on other shows. Uh, I thought the naturalism as they come out of it actually worked really well. I really liked those performances then, but it, as that scene was escalating, that really didn't work for me. Uh, otherwise, I did really like the rest of the episode, and I have to give credit to the writers, as well as Catherine Donahue, uh, the, who plays Lindsay, for really deepening that character from somebody I did not care about at all to somebody that I actually do, without making her all of a sudden more intense or profound, or she's still very much the same character, but we're just slowly getting to see more of what's behind. I also really enjoyed <laughs> Edgar's um, conversation on the, with uh, with the shock jock on the radio, uh, which was just the way that he kept just ignoring the various ridiculous and stupid things that the guy was saying as he tried to, you know, open up. I thought was was really nice until it just they hit the he hit the wall and then just hung up. It was uh, it was a fun little sequence there. I thought. That had to have been the cousin of Crazy Ira and the douche yeah. and his crew from Parks and Rec. So that was fantastic, yeah. Well, uh, what wins your week in comedy? Uh, you know, this might have been my favorite episode of You're the Worst. I'd have to think about that a little bit longer, but I'm going to give it to that this week. I'm going to give it to... Yeah, I, they're pretty much all tied for me, but I guess I'll give it to Married because you gave it to You're the Worst. Um, they're, they're all being very consistent. And again, 
to go back to it, this is a really good year for first season uh, cable comedies. For usually first season comedies, I mean, you just mentioned Parks and Rec. Their first season is dire because they just don't, they didn't have the tone right. They didn't have the balance right yet. And all of these shows seem to have found their their voice and their tone and the balance of the characters really quickly. Uh, so I'm, I'm enjoying all of them. Uh, how's that for hedging my bets? Let's go on to reality and start with Top Chef Masters, Mike Isabella and Antonio Lafazo. And I wasn't going to mention or even really keep watching Top Chef Masters, but I happened to watch this one and really enjoyed it. So I wanted to mention that because I, I love just the kind of crazy glee, uh, gleam in Mike's eyes as, as we hear his challenge, which is a relay of breaking down, uh, what was it? it was shrimp and clams and you have to prep all this different stuff and then you got to cook like it's just crazy the 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 challenge that he gave to himself and to Antonia so I really enjoyed the energy that that gave this episode plus the fact that the two of them are clearly very friendly and have more of a personal relationship which is something that builds when you watch a season of, of Top Chef or really any co competitive uh, show like that real reality competition show Usually they have the competitors live together or something to create drama, uh, which means that they get to know each other and that affects their cooking and their interactions. Uh, the previous two uh, uh, Top Chef Masters, or Top Chef Duels, I should say, uh, have not had that element because there aren't they aren't chefs who actually know each other and have been on previous seasons together. Having, uh, well, I guess Marcel and uh, Richard did have all-stars together. But anyway, so having... Mike and is uh, Mike and Antonia, Antonia who know each other far you know, much better than, for example, Brooke and Shirley, really added to my enjoyment of this this episode of Top Chef Duels. And uh, I don't know if I'll watch any more, but I'm glad that I watched this one. So I figured I'd mention it. Uh, let's go on to So You Think You Can Dance. Just get it out of the way, Valerie. America, you've failed. Yeah, and I don't even know. I mean, crap. Casey and Jackie were, in my opinion, the second best guy and girl of the six there. So it's it's wrong that that Valerie is still there. It's less wrong that Zach is there because he's definitely improved a lot over the season. But I don't know. I'm not going to worry too much about it because there's no way that she's going to win. So. Well, and and I I loved uh, first of all I loved a little smirk on your face while you said that because I'm right there with you, <laughs> um, but also I I loved that basically Casey and Jackie they got eliminated but everybody knows that Ricky's gonna win, and uh, you know maybe there'll be a shock upset and Jessica will win but the producers have structured the season, uh, and the choreographers also. To, to make sure that Ricky wins because they keep giving him dances that play to his bubbly, uh, smiley persona. Seeing him do the cha-cha this week, which required a different kind of expression from him, was incredibly refreshing until about halfway through when he, you know, at first he was doing this kind of like smirky, flirty thing with his face, but then about halfway through he just was back to smiling again. But when you haven't been forced to stretch yourself emotionally or with character all season long as he has not had to stretch at all uh, from a performance or character level all season long, of course he's going to have trouble with it at the end of the season when he's finally asked to not smile 
all the time. Um, so I don't really give him too much of a hard time about that as much as I give the producers and the the choreographers a hard time for constantly giving him the same character. I saw a lot of love online for Valerie's hip-hop number. I was bored. And really, I, I, if they put pretty much anybody else with Twitch, I would have liked that number better. But even he just... She, she seemed like she brought him down rather than the other way around. I... I enjoyed it. It did seem like the synchronicity was off in a couple moments, which was strange. Um, I was okay with that one. Like, see, none of her performances that are like actively annoyed me, and they only would if I considered the fact that some clearly stronger dancers have already left uh, ahead of her. But regarding Ricky, um, his solo—I know we've seen all of this stuff before, but man. When we get to see him really do his thing, he's just a ridiculously good dancer. So that was, like, kind of amazing. Um, and I really liked both of Jessica's performances this week. So that was it. not just because she's solid and that she's maintained a high level, but because they were very, I guess, energetic. The best stuff that we've seen her do, I think, has been more emotional, and these ones were a bit more fun. So it was great that the quality didn't drop off there for me. Yeah, the that disco looked like it was a bit of a beast. There were some awkward transitions in there, but all things considered, it looked like it, it was again, it was fun. Um it also played to her per, her personality of choice as well. But um I, and I should say with Valerie, I think she did a good job compared to her other dances in that hip hop number. But I'm thinking of, for example, the, the Twitch number with Jessica or the Twitch number with Jackie and comparing those to the Twitch number with Valerie here. And I'm underwhelmed. Valerie's still in and Tanisha's not. And again, we got our Valerie and Ricky number where just like the rest of the season, the choreography for the first 30 or 40 seconds is her literally standing and then sitting in place while Ricky dances around her. <laughs> The fact that that gets no mention from the from the judges is shocking to me. Yeah, and then when she does get up, he just leaps through the the swing, so it just it doesn't put her into a good position. No, and again, she's so good at that character. She's really good at that character, uh, and that is not nothing by a long shot. That is certainly something to praise. But you got to be able to do more when you're in the top four. Uh, in my opinion. Uh, also, I have to say, I was very disappointed in uh, Christina Applegate as a judge. I thought she added almost nothing to the conversation. A little bit with the Foxtrot, she actually said useful things, but I have been very underwhelmed with her as a judge the past two times she's come on. She's done nothing but cheerlead and say the same. When she says to Casey, um, at this point, what can we say? There's nothing we can say. It's like, no, oh no, there's a lot you could say, but you're not saying it. You're just cheerleading, and I have no interest in, in watching cheerleaders. I will fast forward through that. This That is specifically why I do not watch shows like American Idol or show, some of these other reality competition shows where the judges offer no critique, and therefore the contestants don't get better. Um, so I she's no longer one of She was my all-time favorite judge, guest judge for any of these kinds of shows. She is no longer on that list for me because that was ridiculous as far as I was concerned. But I'm harsh on that what did you think no you were right i noticed it as well where either what she was saying was really brief or not up to the criticism that she had done uh during the auditions um i think misty copeland has probably been the best one for this season that i've seen in terms of providing good feedback uh consistently so 
Yeah, when she said, what can we say? I was like, hmm, I bet Misty would have some things to say. I know <laughs> I noticed things that they should work on in this that you don't feel the need to mention, but yeah. I, I just tweeted, so you think you can dance, producers, and you have a job. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, well, then, uh, for me, I guess uh, Top Chef Masters wins my re week in reality. You only watch So You Think You Can Dance, so I guess that wins for you? It does. Which dance wins on So You Think You Can Dance? Um, I'm going to go sentimental and say that it's Jackie's solo, which was beautiful and maybe not technically as good as Ricky's, but she had a great season, and I really warmed up to her by the end of it, so I'm sad to see her go. Okay, fair enough. Um, now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre. This week in genre, Sean's going to talk a little bit about the True Blood finale, Thank You, as well as Legend of Korra Season 3, which just wrapped up. And then we'll both talk about uh, the Doctor Who premiere, Deep Breath, and Outlanders, The Way Out. So first up, True Blood wrapped up its series, had a series finale with Thank You, which i got to say is a pretty good title for a series finale. Uh, how, did it, how did it end? What did you think? It's also a really good Zeppelin song, uh, and that's the one that they used at the end, which was very appropriate. Um you know, I, I could say quite a few critical things about this, and I probably ought to, but considering that this season got better from a what I thought was a very rocky start, uh, there were some really effective things. And I think one of the best things about the latter half of this season is that they really focused on the father-daughter relationship of Bill and Jess, and that ended up paying off really well here. So they definitely rushed this whole thing where Bill's dying and he wants to give away Jess. And so Hoyt, having basically just met Jessica again for the first time, they get married in this episode. And it's a nice ceremony, but kind of cheesy, kind of dumb. Um, but it was useful in terms of giving Bill, who has been obviously a series mainstay, um, some some nice things as a send-off, I guess. So it was supposed to be structured so that Suki would kill him with the big fairy ball so that not only would he be gone, but she wouldn't have to deal with her fae powers anymore, but she ended up realizing that that was, like, the biggest part of her, so she ended up just staking him <laughs> in his grave, which, I don't know. It wasn't as emotional, probably, as it ought to have been, but uh, Anna Paquin's performance in that was, I think, very good, especially after the fact. Uh, very devastating. So, it certainly True Blood never reached the potential that it could have in its six seasons. Um, and yet, you know, there there were good times here and there. Um, even in the, the worst seasons, there were things to enjoy. I thought that, apart from Hoyt and Jessica, 
one of the best relationships they had handled in their career was uh, Lafayette and Jesus. Jesus, yeah, and that was, I think, one of the better parts of True Blood overall. So um, I probably won't go back to rewatch this series, but I, I imagine that I'll occasionally rewatch some clips or maybe some key episodes here and there. Yeah, I got to say, just uh, reading some tweets that were going out, and uh, I found a recap because I was curious uh, what happened in the finale. Like the notion of her killing Bill with with uh, her fairy ball of energy, whatever. Uh, just if I had been watching, I would have been angry. It's like, yeah, kill me and a uh, big part of yourself as well. Sacrifice your power and become normal and therefore not defensible against, uh, you know, give away your only way to defend yourself against all this craziness that happens around you and become another hapless human victim in Bontemps. That would have been very annoying until the obvious, of course, she wasn't going to do that came about. So I'm I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, what happened? What went down with uh, Eric and Pam? I heard something about them making a bunch of money. Oh, yeah, man. After Eric uh, cured himself, they are basically just keeping Sarah Newland in the basement of Fantasia, uh, <laughs> just exploiting her. And it's great because she's just down there hallucinating and not having a good time. But uh, they're marketing new blood. So anybody who's been infected with Hep V uh, can buy that. And anybody who pays an extraordinary amount of money can actually feed from Sarah himself. So... They've got a good thing going in a very Eric and Pam way. What about Ginger? Ginger was not in this episode, but she got a, a perfect, perfect final scene, I think, last week, where Eric was just so frustrated with everything and just walked into Fantasia. And obviously, Ginger freaks out about everything. And finally, he's just like, you know what? We're having sex. And then they do. And then she finishes very early and... <laughs> It was hilarious. Okay, well, at least she she goes out happy in the series, I guess, then? Yeah. She's been such a fun mainstay of that show for so long. And what about Jason? That's my last question. Uh, Jason finally met somebody who he didn't have to sleep with on the first night. Uh, it was kind of weird that it was Hoyt's ex-girlfriend who he had come back to Bontemps with. But uh, in the flash-forwards, we see that he ends up marrying her and they have kids. So that's a happy ending there. And he and Hoyt become friends again, which was cool. That's nice. All right, cool. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I heard that Sookie's randomly married or pregnant in the future, but they don't tell you who the dad is. Yeah, they show him from the back in the very last shot. So, I mean, whatever. It, it almost looked like a guy with a similar uh, look to Alcide. So, I don't know. Okay. Basically, they're like... Not Eric. She doesn't end up with Eric. Was basically no. what they wanted to say. Okay, fair enough. Well, the season f series finales are always. It's always interesting to see what the show feels their priorities are and what how they want to end. So maybe someday I'll I'll you know catch back up with the show from feeling like a marathon or something. But for now, I think I'm good that I stopped when I did. It's it it doesn't sound like it was a disappointing finale. No, not in the same way that I think people were abhorred from Dexter. Okay, fair enough. I'm glad to hear it. What about the season finale of Legend of Korra, as well as, I guess, the season as a whole? Oh, God. Well, first of all, 100% agree with Augustine. It's stupid how much you're going to enjoy the show once you finally get to it, and I look forward to talking with you when you do. Um, 
this season and this finale, everything got paid off so well. And each season of The Legend of Korra has done such a great job of establishing its conflict. So the seeds will be planted in the early episodes. We'll kind of do a lot of good character development for about the first half. And in this season, it was Lynn, and we got to meet her sister, who uh, had a great um, turn from Anne Heche, um, and and she was great, and, and Lynn was absolutely the breakout character for this season. Um, and then the conflict always like really ramps up towards the end of the season, and, and shit hits the proverbial fan. And it was, again, the same case with this one. The stakes probably weren't, they certainly weren't as big as they were in last season, but this, again, really challenged Korra, and it just so many feels. And actually, this was a very dark season and finale. Like, um, this is a Nickelodeon show, and they've been very careful about, you know, making sure when people get knocked out of the air that they have parachutes. But uh, people died, <laughs> which was relatively heavy, and... Uh, I won't mention specifically who, but um, it was it was surprising, and the way that things went down, I thought was just superb. the The final fight sequences between Zahir and his group versus Korra and everybody else, the choreography and the shooting and the scoring in this is consistently perfect. It's it, it's so emotional, and uh, I know Janora was a character. Uh, last season, who was the breakout character, certainly. But uh, I've talked before about how it's usually like the really happy moments that, that really make me cry, and it's not so much the sad ones. And it was, again, um, that with this finale, where Janora really brings the airbenders together in a way that basically saves Korra, and she earns her, her tattoo and becomes an airbending master. And I was just so proud of her, and I was bawling <laughs> in that ceremony. So um, once again, it, it ends in a way that I get, everybody should have a lot of questions about what the, the final season is going to look like, um, because there's a lot that needs to be fixed or changed in some way. But good God, this without a doubt, will be in my top ten for the year. Legend of Korra is so, so good. I don't know. Do you have any questions about it? No, I just look forward to, to catching up with it because, like, I, I'm sure you are right, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure Augustine is right as well, that I will very much like this show. When I saw the panel for it last year at Comic-Con, um, or actually maybe it was two years ago at this point. No, I think it was last year at Comic-Con. I really enjoyed, like, the very brief... Uh, table read that they did and the, what I was seeing about the show was really interesting and, and really uh, positive. I, you know, So I'm sure that I'll really like the show just as I'm sure I'll really like Avatar The Last Airbender when I catch up with that as well. Um, there's just, there's too much there's too much TV. Yeah, it's, it may be blasphemy and it's weird coming out of my mouth but depending on how the last season goes, Korra has put itself into a position where it, it might end up being a better show than Avatar was, so that's probably the highest praise that I could possibly give it. Nice. It's, that's intriguing. Well, again, it's on the list. It is 
it is on the list for hopefully being able to catch up with it soon. Uh, last week, I talked a little bit about the Intruders pilot. Uh, Sean, you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, so we're going to hold off on talking about that. We'll talk about it more next week. And same thing with The Strain for services rendered. Uh, again, I have, no, I have nothing new to add for, on The Strain at this point. Hopefully, the next episode, things will keep gearing up. We got more fun Holocaust flashbacks. Um, it, it, there was actually a couple nice moments in there, but on the whole, it's nothing new. And, um, I, I'm vaguely intrigued by this good army of vampires, question mark, whatever's going on with that. Um, but we'll, I don't know. We'll, I'll wait to talk more about the strain until I have more to say. Uh, but let's, let's dive in instead with the Doctor Who premiere, Deep Breath. My review is up at Sound On Sight. Uh, my lengthy review <laughs> is up. And I'm of two minds with this one. There's a lot I really like. And then, and I, as I started the, the episode, most of the first two-thirds of this episode, I was very positive on uh, with certain caveats of, I feel like every Doctor should be a distinct doctor and have a distinct vocal pattern and and uh, rhythms of speech and all of that and that is very much not present here this doctor feels exactly like the 11th doctor in what he is saying the decisions he is making when he goes to the door and says door not me too boring and goes out the window instead that's exactly what the 11th doctor would have done and that's frustrating to me i guess they should be a different person with the same memories. That's my philosophy of the Doctor. Putting that aside, though, I really liked most of this episode. Then we get to the end, and I hated the end of this episode very passionately. I wrote about it in in my review, um, and it, it's like the, I was watching the first two-thirds of this episode, and I was like, oh, this could be really interesting. There's a lot changing here as far as the, the pacing of the show. I like that they brought back Va Jenny Vastra and Strax and actually spent more time with Jenny this time around. Usually they don't. I like what we get, um, some of the stuff we get with Clara, even if some of it doesn't feel earned. I like that they are trying to make her feel like a person. There's a lot I like here. And then we get to the phone call in the TARDIS, and I got less than happy. Uh, for really, the whole rest of the episode, I checked out from and did not like. Uh, what did you think of this premiere? And how familiar are you with Doctor Who in general? Not familiar, really, at all. Very much a newbie. I saw quite a few of the Christopher Eccleston ones and um, certainly a handful of David Tennant, but it was mostly casual. It was mostly like seeing it at friends' places and stuff like that. I never like sat down and, and watched a full season, so this will be, I guess, my first experience with this. I've not seen any of the Matt Smith ones, so I was kind of expecting you had said that you really dislike some aspects of that and I was kind of expecting that to be the, the ending of that and that conversation because um, I don't know it was that like cheap what what was your problem with that mostly oh that conversation well yeah. the problem I have with it there's there's a few the biggest one is that it's a blatant cheat because in his last moments on the show Matt Smith's doctor first of all they age him up hugely he thinks he's going to die he doesn't believe he's going to regenerate so either when when you see him and he's young that means either he's called her before he's aged significantly when he thinks he's not going to regenerate which doesn't make any sense or he's called her at the very end when they had the character de-age himself 
which has never been shown to be possible before. But I guess he used a little bit of his regeneration energy to make himself look young again to talk to her, basically because they didn't want a bunch of gunk on Matt Smith's face while he was talking to Clara. They could have just not aged him up in the first place, but that's ridiculous. Anyways, so that means that he must have called her either when he did not believe he would regenerate, which doesn't make any sense, or he called her right before he spoke to her in the episode when he came out looking young again. In which case, when he does that in the episode, it, rather than spending time with her and saying goodbye to her and easing her through the transition, he then imagines his former companion and spends his last moments talking to a, pro a mental projection of her instead because he'd rather be with his other companion. So it's absolutely, it's a, it's a horrible mistreatment of the Clara character. It's like, oh, you aren't Amy, so I don't care about you. I'm going to just go so sit here in the corner and talk to myself because I, that's how much I'd rather be talking to Amy right now than talking to you. And I'm not even that big a Clara fan. I don't think she's well written. I'm not that interested in the character. And I loved Amy. Uh, and those moments, that moment was very effective, but it was, again, it was a cheat in that last episode. So to now, in this episode, have it say, oh, see, but he called her, he had already, he knew he was going to say goodbye to her, so it's okay that he treated her like crap, because he knew he was going to have called her in the future, and then that's when he was really going to have said goodbye. But, but then, from his timeline, he does that, he has this very heart to heart, he has very touching heart to heart conversation with Clara saying, I need you. I care about you so much. You need to help me transition into this new doctor. He, you don't understand how much I need you and he needs you. And then afterwards, go talk to his timeline, Clara, and ignore her and treat her like crap. It's ridiculous. It's completely disrespectful. So it's a, it's, it's trying to have your cake and eat it too, in a way that expects that the audience isn't going to think about or care that it's such a mistreatment of the character. And they should know that Kate Kolchik is going to know and care. <laughs> yes, I am going to care a lot more than probably they want me to. But uh, so, yeah, I, I really, really did not like that uh, that at all. I had a very big problem with it. And uh, also I had when you bring in the previous doctor to tell the companion, no, no, that's still me. But this is the doctor. This is a companion who has met every single regeneration of the doctor. And she went, the, her previous episode, two, two episodes before, or stories before, was a multi-doctor episode where she was hanging out with the 10th Doctor, the 11th Doctor, and the War Doctor. So she's met him in several different faces before. She shouldn't be freaking out about regeneration because she's hung out with every single Doctor, young and old. She's hung out with Doctors that are older than this Doctor. And so to have her, and then having her obsess about that, that the fact that he looks old... When yeah. she's hung out with older ones before, and she's saying, "Oh no, it's not that I I'm worried that he's not pretty. It's that see, but see, but but you're worried about the the fact that he's not pretty." And then they have the her scold the audience for how could you ever think that I would care what about what he looks like when I keep obsessing about what he looks like? It's just I I understand why they wanted to do that. They wanted to kind of preempt the 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 fangirl reaction of he's not hot anymore, guys. Um, and I'm sure there are plenty of fans who would not agree with that statement. Um, but but you don't get to use Clara to do that if you want to be consistent to what she's been in the past. So it's just, there's a lot of problems that I have with that treatment of the character. Yeah, it was kind of unfortunate watching and just so many of the, the old comments surrounding Peter Capaldi because I felt kind of bad for him. Because mm -hmm. he's not really that old. I he's mean, not! He's, 
still relatively young, and I think he's a very handsome guy. But uh, yeah, the the material that I latched onto did revolve around, I guess, Clara coming to grips with the current situation, and then eventually realizing that it was the same person and being able to to trust him and get along with him. Um, the the third act action sequence I thought was very solid. Um, and the tension there was good. The I don't know any of the technical terms in terms of like what these entities are, but uh, that's the the cyborg got to paradise in the end was a good touch. So that was fun. The T Rex at the beginning was fun, but uh, yeah, it wasn't a premiere that really impressed me. But I'm I'm certainly looking forward to seeing. Capaldi in this role because I really like him as an actor. Yeah, he's fantastic, and there's a there's so much to like about this episode. That's what makes it so frustrating. If I could just write it off, that would be that would be a lot easier. But instead, you get that wonderful scene with about the eyebrows. I thought that was so nuanced and so specific to the actor, to Capaldi or Capaldi. I'm hearing it's Capaldi, by the way. So I think I've been saying it wrong for years. Um, anyways, uh, when he talks about the fact that his eyebrows are are cross and they're always cross and there's nothing he can do about it and what kind of person like why would he give himself eyebrows that are angry all the time i thought that was really very reflective uh, you know it's really thoughtful and i really appreciated that that whole sequence works incredibly well uh, i i hated the ending cause, but that's because it's that's going to be the season long arc and it's going to be a little, that character of Missy is very familiar to several other characters that Moffat likes to write. He likes to write the same character and copy and paste and just change the name about most of the elements of the, of that kind of a character. So I'm not, I'm not convinced he's not going to do the exact same thing again with that. Um, but you know, so I get, you know, I see how, if that's the first time you're seeing that, kind of ending it's it seems really interesting and fun for me having seen that before i'm not interested in it but but no capaldi is he's very very good he's an excellent actor he exploded my brain with children of earth and of course he's amazing on um uh the uh the thick of it and in the loop and i think he's got a lot of potential to be a great doctor my trouble just comes down to the writing as it has so many so many times in the moffat era so uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. I, and again, I could just keep talking all day, so I should stop. <laughs> any, any final thoughts about uh, about this premiere? Um, yeah, that was. I mean, it, it felt lived in, so it, it didn't feel overlong, even though it was a longer episode. So that's that's a good sign. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's move on to Outlander episode three, The Way Out, which is one of my favorite, I think, episodes of the show so far. It's, I mean, it's only episode three, but the show is progressing in a way that I think is um, interesting. I like that they're basically making Claire kind of a booze hound. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you were shuttled uh, 200 years into the past and were cut off from everyone you knew or cared about, wouldn't you go for the wine a little bit too? I mean... Oh, man, I'd be way into that Rhenish, and I'm glad that they, they showed her doing that. And also the voiceover just admitting that that's what she was doing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And again, that takes care of that, like, she keeps making all the right decisions thing. And it gives her at least one flaw where you're like, you probably shouldn't be doing... I mean, I understand why you are, but you probably shouldn't be doing that. I'm very glad that she's no longer miss makes the right decision all the time. Yeah, it was a very thought-provoking episode, I think, in terms of looking at um, spirituality and mysticism in this world and comparing that, or at least challenging her to 
uh, what she knows in, in her own world, especially given that uh, her profession relies on like actual modern medicine. But I'm, I'm less enamored with how they're teasing out the, the Jamie story because maybe it's just the character that I don't like or care about or the way in which she is manipulating him. Um, again, which she admits to in this episode, which was good. But I just, it's not a part of the show that I'm interested in, which is weird because this is certainly a romance show. And so some kind of relationship is going to be there, but this isn't the one that I'm looking for, I think. I've really, um, yeah, I liked some of the, the different elements of, of that. I like the, the friendship that they're building, and I like that it does feel like they're building a friendship, not just a waiting for them to hook up. Uh, there's certain elements of the, of the personality there that I think work. I mean, imagine trying to be a doctor in the setting where she is, where people have absolutely no concept of germ theory. That's a, Nobody has any concept of what that is. So trying to explain why you keep obsessing about boiling water or sterilizing bandages and stuff, it wouldn't make sense. You know, they're like, why would you bother? Do it looks clean. I'm sure it's clean. You're like, well, there are these microscopic little fairies on the i mean <laughs> trying to explain it, it would just be absolutely frustrating and and again i like that they keep emphasizing in this episode in the sort of um flash sideways if you want to call it of what if she just said i'm from the future to somebody she trusted and to have you know to show here's why here's why she doesn't do it because this could easily happen i really appreciated that and then to have it come up and a couple other, you know, the, those elements come up in different ways. The conflict with the patriarchal uh, man of the church is very um, expected. So I, that, I was a little underwhelmed by that, but I think the performance from that actor was good. Um, and they need to have tension somewhere, I guess. So that, I was a little underwhelmed by that. But um, but in general, I'm, I'm really liking it. I also, I loved that opening scene. Can you think of another World War Two? Or, or World War One, or any kind of war story like that, where they're going off for the train, and the woman is the one going to the front lines. Mm, not that I can remember. No. I, I just I loved that. Yeah, I did too, and I'm glad that we got, even though it was a flashback, I got it. That we got more time uh, with, Frank. with those two characters. Yeah, and with Frank. Uh, you haven't read the books, right? No, I've no, and, and I'm not either. Um, what do you think about the idea of incorporating some of these more magical elements? Is that something that you would want to see or that you think could even happen? Um, I, as long as she's not waving a wand around or anything. I'm, <laughs> I, I, hey, this is a show where a woman touches a stone and travels back 200 years in time. I, I am completely comfortable with there being mystical elements. Having it develop into a highly structured conspiracy or something, no, that doesn't interest me. But having there be stuff that is unexplained or that they don't quite understand, or a, maybe, like, I think they're kind of setting up that one character to be a potentially mystical, magical kind of person. The the other, I don't remember the character's name, but the other, the woman who talks down the guy from cutting off the hand to, to instead of ha having the child rip his ear apart. Lovely. Um, yeah, I think that character could be interesting, and I, I like how they're playing it, how it could be a positive or a negative thing. You don't really quite know. Um, but no, I'm completely fine with there being a couple more unexplained elements 
because it would be it would be odd if the only the single only mystical or unexplainable thing is you know the world is otherwise completely rational oh never mind this 200 year time jump yeah and i i would totally agree with that and i would look forward to seeing more of that um and the tensions between the the attitudes towards that whether that's religious based or otherwise so um something that i hope happens in this first season i'm hoping that they go somewhere interesting with it and i'm i think i'm willing to give them my trust now uh, after seeing this episode so i'm encouraged but um yeah i think again it's only episode three so what you're saying is outlander is going to naturally transition into salem yes <laughs> yes i'm looking forward to it of course yes that is what it will be <laughs> Well, uh, any other thoughts on, on Outlander? Any hopes for the next couple episodes? Um, no, I mean, I'm I'm enjoying my time there. Um, I wish the world, like I said, the world was a little bit more strange so that it, it felt a little bit more unique. But otherwise, um, still something that I enjoy watching at this point, which is good. Yeah. Um, well, what wins your week in genre? Without a doubt, Legend of Korra. And I will give it to... I'm going to give it to Outlander, I think. Because there are higher highs and lower lows for me with the Doctor Who premiere. So I'm going to give it to Outlander instead. Well, uh, now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama. drama first i'll talk briefly about the nick and the honorable woman then sean and i will talk the leftovers the garvey's at their best masters of sex asterian and then the rectify finale unhinged uh, first the nick the busy flea i again i really liked this episode uh, particularly in comparison to the pre two previous i thought this was a step up in quality i really like what they're giving algernon to do that is so much more interesting and i'm very glad that the show seems to agree with me and the the way that it's dividing its time in the way that it divides its time in this episode between different characters uh, really benefits Algernon. So I'm hoping that that is going to be indicative of what's to come. I do not care about the the administrator who has the uh, who owes money to the mob or whatever. I that's that does not feel like anything I haven't seen before. But there are other parts of the episode that do, and so I was enjoying those elements and. Uh, We'll see what comes next. But this is a step in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. The Honorable Woman, the ribbon cutter, I thought uh, did a good job. I really liked that they so quickly filled in the blanks of what happened. I thought the the, 
the hair and makeup for de-aging the characters worked well and i like that we get our our answers of you know just again this is what episode four episode five of the honorable woman and in one episode they just stop with all the questions and the secrets and um let the audience in on not just what happened to Nessa, but what happened with her brother and what happened with the the business. So I look forward to what comes next for The Honorable Woman. Everybody who has been watching in the UK was talking about the finale this week, which apparently is amazing. Uh, I am still trying to not watch ahead <laughs> so that I don't get spoilery, but um, I'm very encouraged by what I saw this week and what I continue to see with the show. We'll talk more about next week, but let's go get to the leftovers, the Garvey's at their best. It was lovely to to get this episode. I was I did not expect it. And this is the second to last episode, I believe, yes, of the season. So to get uh that time with with the Garveys to actually see them as a functional family for the most part, uh I thought really worked to get an answer to why Amy Brenneman's character freaked out the, the, as much as she did was nice. And even just to see them as a family unit made me care a lot more about the son. And then, of course, we got some really good stuff with Nora. It was nice to actually see uh, uh, Janelle Maloney, you know, get to act a little bit in this. What did you think of this episode? I I hesitate to praise it for its departure from the norm. So the fact that this is entirely a flashback episode is certainly interesting because I think we've all had a lot of questions about what life was like before everybody disappeared. Um, but I don't want that to be the thing that makes me ignore certain aspects of it. And I'm glad that you pointed out some of the stronger areas uh, otherwise. But the relationship between the family, you know what, it might just be the Jill and Tommy um, felt way too overboard i guess i don't know the the change is very drastic especially with jill and obviously that was meant to be highlighted but the the relationships there um didn't really feel real like the way tommy and just the way them as brother and sister they interacted i don't know it it felt way too (laughs) extreme on the opposite side of the spectrum um so that kind of bugged me i was i was fine with it because so, he's because I, he's back from college and because they don't see each other most of the time that that you know if, if they were both living in the same roof i don't know that i would have bought it but it like the sort of oh my cool big brother's back and i never get to see him and he's hanging we're hanging out the science fit like i i bought it from that context yeah, they were smiling and laughing and he kissed her on the cheek and it was nice and that's a good family or at least that part of the family to one note for you though a little bit maybe okay. yeah um the, the music was certainly toned down, which I really appreciated. It felt like the only um, the highlighted moment was at near the end, which was the appropriate time to do that. So it didn't really feel overbearing, like I've said in the past. So that was a solid. Um, and, yeah, the, the the title would suggest, I mean, the title is obviously ironic. So it, it was great to see the, the beginnings of the disintegrations here. Um, like, obviously... Nora's life isn't perfect before her family disappears, so that is useful to see and deepens her character. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this episode. It, it 
think it works as a penultimate episode because otherwise you're left trying to um, lead certain stories to the conclusion and then just feels like table setting. So this is a good way of not doing that. It's a, it's a good way of um, focusing more on character development so that we come to the finale uh, with a better understanding of the characters. But just in a vacuum, it might have worked. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I, I feel this way about The Leftovers overall, though. So some things kind of annoy me, and some things I think are done rather beautifully. Um, it was convenient, I guess, how everybody was connected in one way or the other, whether that was Patty being a patient of the wife or uh, Gladys being the person that they adopt or don't adopt a dog from. So, again, um, you say something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there's one part of the episode that didn't work as well for me, as much as I do still really enjoy that performer and the Nora character, it seems a little... um, it was a little, oh, and of course, she yells at her daughter right before the daughter disappears so that she can be guilty about that as well. as Like, it's enough for her daughter to have disappeared or for her to have been short with her, to have her actually yell at her daughter and then, like, have this, oh, stupid kids look right before they disappear. That was a little, just, it felt a little lazy, a little, like, you don't, you don't need that. You, you've already established enough. We already know that the husband's having the affair. And so when he comes home late from work, it pro- he probably wasn't at work. He was probably with the kindergarten teacher that he's having the affair with. Uh, so th- there was, you know, I thought I thought that was a little over the top, maybe. Though the the, 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 the dripping orange juice, have using that as a context to, to really highlight the time of it where it's no that orange juice is still dripping down off the table that's how instant this is uh and really kind of underline that element of it i thought worked really well they found really um (laughs) unusual and or contrived for emotional reasons ways of putting people into positions when the disappearing happens uh my favorite in terms of like it actually being kind of troubling and effective was probably with Tommy and Jill where now somebody in the circle is just gone and that's really strange uh Sheriff Garvey's was unfortunately amusing that he had just had sex with this person and now she's gone well usually just had uh were they mid oh you know that makes it even worse I don't know if they were but that would be a little bit more disturbing, <laughs> especially yeah. given his history of, uh, well, I guess we don't know when it really started with his father. His father seems to be lucid in this, but if there's a history of mental illness in his family, because uh, you'd think that's what you'd go to first, holy crap, was it, did I just imagine this woman I was having sex with, because she can't have just disappeared, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's there's some interesting you know, things there. I don't have as much trouble with the, the different interconnections, I think, because it seems that Maple Mapleton has been established as being a small town. On the scale of things, there I mean there probably is only one or two, uh, there are only one or two psychiatrists or you know dog breeders. So you know, I liked seeing Gladys back. That was just it was that was a nice little moment, and for me to have that connection with Laurie and uh, and Patty predate the the departures actually strengthens that. It makes it make more sense to me. 
um, or, or it makes more sense why Lori bought into what Patty was saying. If she did, you know, if they did have that moment before, uh, the, 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 um, the moment with Garvey where they, they pull up and they think he's one of the remnant, basically. Are you right? And say, are you right? That again, that's another one of these teasing about mystery stuff that I don't need the show to do. Cause I know they're, I'm pretty sure that they're not going to pay it off. Um, but otherwise I think on the whole, I, I was, I was pretty good with this one. The, the best episodes are still the character specific ones as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I think the Nora episode has been my favorite so far. Any thoughts on what you hope from the finale? Um, I don't expect answers, certainly, so I can't hope for that. Um, you know, just a a good conclusion or pause break for the Garvey story. I think that they've been a, a fairly intriguing family overall. I'd like to see something from Jill because they've not really used her as effectively as they ought to have. Um, and she's gotten a lot of big scenes that should otherwise be good. Um, so something there, probably. Yeah. Oh, I guess the last thing I'll say is that I do think they effectively de-aged her. The braces go a long way, but I think also just her body language and her performance. I bought her as a high school, like, you know, couple couple years younger kind of person and having been aged very much by this experience just in her demeanor. So I, I, I really, I bought that in a way I didn't expect to. So next up though is Masters of Sex, Asterion, and uh, we got a huge time jump, change of pace, and I loved it. Yeah, several time jumps, and it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, again, like so many interesting things are up in the air in this episode. Uh, it was great to see his mom return. Uh, I don't even know where you want to begin. The the back and forth that argument between Bill and Libby was fantastic. Both of those performances were very, very good. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, the the part that I key into for this episode, uh, I really like the construction of it, and I really like the use of Betty to to progress the time jumps. So every time she walks through, having her her clothes be a trigger, having you know the you know, kind of just jumping ahead. I'm so glad they skipped over the next round of fertility treatments which, uh, and and the girl the, having the daughter. I'm very glad that they skipped over Betty getting her accountancy degree or real estate and all of that. I love having her as an integral part of the show now. She's she's their business manager. She's on top of all of that. I thought that was great. Um, you know, there's there are many people I was very glad to see back here. Um, the the actress, the name escapes me, who was selling the diet pills, uh, I I always know her from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> Slightly different role there. Uh, but it was nice to see her back. Uh, and just again, to watch Bill be an absolute bastard. Man, he's so fun when he's drunk, isn't he? Well, and just to have the show willing to do that. And because uh, what I had heard uh, third hand, I guess, from somebody who was taking one of our listeners who was taking a class with people who had worked with Masters and Johnson on their study was that the in the pilot, the representation we get of of Bill was a bit cuddly compared to who he actually was. So this feels you know to have them willing to go to this darker place and make him even more unlikable. I really appreciated and to have them have a somewhat honest conversation for once and say, yeah, so we're engaged. We're 
participating in the study, but clearly this is an affair. This is a relationship. So let's not try to pretend it isn't. And you can stop being a possessive asshole. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot I think to like there and to have Virginia realize just how she's been treating these men in her life and, um, and how interchangeable they are for her as charming yeah. as she is. I felt that really fit with her conversation with Lillian or about Lillian in the previous episode where she's saying she doesn't let people in. She doesn't let these bows in either, really. Mm. So it's nice to see that. Yeah, because she, I mean, like, Bill's obviously an asshole and the, the way that he keeps using that uh, argument of you sleep with a bunch of people or whatever, the, the fact that he just assumes and this defines... Virginia's character to some extent is just terrible, terrible on his part. Um, and then to to put that alongside the fact that she doesn't even remember some of these guys' names or uh, well, not names, but occupations details that you ought to remember from an ex um, because they are quite big details. Do you have kids or not? Um, that's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's good to kind of have both of those on screen at the same time. The the differences between that scene where they're up in the balcony and at first it looks like Bill's doing something and then he transitions into horrible monster incredibly quickly and then to have their their hotel room sex scene. I guess it wasn't uh, entirely, um, but to have that as well I thought worked fantastic. You mentioned Betty. It's it's great because Betty's been used as like an analog to Bill in some ways um, and, and that's really interesting I think because they have similar characteristics and it's great that that Bill's able to warm up to her in some ways. He plays it off as just, you know, you helped me out in the past, so I'm going to help you out now. But it's, it's clearly something a little bit more than that. So um, she's obviously been a huge breakout for this season and they're using her continuously well. And you, and you talked about that hotel scene. This is, this is a perfect example, and it happened on or earlier this season on, on um, The Americans as well. This is the perfect example of a scene where she's naked and he's clothed, and there's a reason. And it completely tells you their power dynamic in that moment and what where their relationship is at and where they both want it to be at. Uh, and that's yeah, and so the fact – I love that I was able to be thinking about that while I'm watching this show and still engaged in the characters and still really – uh, appreciating everything that's happening on camera. Uh, there shows this is, if you're going to have nudity, this is how you do it. There's a reason, and it informs everything that's going on. And ideally, the characters are aware. I don't think she's not aware of their blatant discrepancy in that moment. And uh, and so I enjoy that the show is willing to embrace that, that aspect of the show. I should also mention our cameraman is back with just a quick line about that bitch, Jane. <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> you know they send postcards from Bitch Town. <laughs> that was pretty great. And then the, you know, I don't remember the character saying the other doctor. That progression with his girlfriend was just so sad. Um, Austin. Austin, yes. You know, and when you fast forward through two years, you know, and I, I here's me being judgmental. Sad if she wants to be. Uh, do, you know, working as a, as a burlesque dancer or in porn, hey, you know what? I shouldn't have any, put any moral or any uh, sort of judgment on that. That's ridiculous, and I, I apologize. Um, to have that, to see where she starts out and where she ends up, If she, we don't get to spend enough time with her to know if she's happy about that or not. 
Um, I wish we actually did. That would have, instead of making it all about him, I, if we're going to meet this other character, I would have liked to know how she felt about it. Uh, obviously, we can see how he feels about it and uh, what he sees, you know, the, the gender roles that he ascribes to, I should say. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. I really liked that conversation of ringing and unringing the bell and how that uh, ties thematically with Virginia and with Bill. And just, again, that Virginia and Libby relationship, because of, apparently they, like, ra raised their kids together. They had this sort of double marriage thing going on, like, in real life, something like that. I don't know how aware Libby was of Bill and Ginny's relationship or participation in the study or whatever you want to call it. I don't know the, the actual history of that. But uh, they apparently did, like, basically raise their kids together. So that's just a fascinating dynamic. And it looks, it looks like they're more willing to explore that moving forward. And I look forward to seeing what comes with that Libby and Ginny relationship. Yeah, I've not looked at future episode titles, which might make it more or less obvious. But uh, do you think they're going to do a, a lake house vacation episode with everybody all under the same roof? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I want to see that or if I'd rather have it in my imagination. Because <laughs> that that would could potentially put characters in very interesting circumstances. Yes, definitely. Um, any other aspects of the episode you want to touch on? Uh, I think we got most of it. Yeah, you mentioned Austin. So another great, great episode of Masters of Sex. Yeah, really strong second season for them, for me. You know, I've been listening to some other podcasts. I know they talked about it this week on Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan, with, of course, you know, Ryan McGee and Mo Ryan. We love them, friends of the show. Um, and some other reviews and podcasts I've been listening to from other TV critics who just they're not embracing this season or not really in, feeling as invested in this season particularly not the secondary characters and I just I can't disagree more I think they're great I've really loved the time I've spent with all of these peripheral characters and I love that the right after they get rid of the Coral character and have the doctors move on from Buell Green they start the episode talking about race relations with that uh, with that or I think it was the start of the episode at least early on in the episode with that newsreel. And so to have, you know, to be like, we're still aware, guys. <laughs> Don't think this part of the show is going away. You know, I was really happy to see that as well. Yeah, insanity. That's, you are not warming up to Masters of Sex, whoever you are out there. So <laughs> this, I, I'm going to be up in arms at the end of the year if like, and I know this is stupid because it's all just numbers and rankings and whatever. But uh, if, if Masters of Sex isn't, higher than the Americans on those lists. And I thoroughly like the Americans, but people were very adamant about how strong that was. And if people are lukewarm on Masters of Sex, I give up. See, I still like the Americans' second season more than the second season of Masters of Sex so far, but I think they'll both be on my top ten because I think they've both been fantastic. Uh, also, guaranteed to be on my top ten, uh, I don't know if it'll be as high as it was last year, though, uh, is Rectify Season 2, which finished up with Unhinged. Uh, I really appreciated uh, this episode. I thought that so much of it was so well done. I loved the scenes we got with Daniel, that that opening that episode in such a beautiful way with Dan, uh, Daniel and Tawny. And then to have Daniel tell Tawny what happened and not tell his mother, but have a con conversation with Ted and then to have Ted Jr. see that Tawny's being informed of, you know, being told at least what Daniel tells her, he doesn't know how honest Daniel was, which Daniel's very honest, but for all he knows, 
all Daniel told Tawny was he he made a bunch of uh, rape jokes at me, and so I I you know reacted. You know we don't know he doesn't know what Daniel said, but to have him see that as a, another betrayal, I thought was really interesting, and um, just what a fantastic season it's been. Yeah, to begin that scene by having Teddy slip some money into Tawny's purse or into her bag before she comes down was a really great touch and another instance of showing that Teddy really does care and this is just a very unfortunate situation that has totally crumbled uh, for both of their lives. But um, yeah, I I got some things to say about this season. Uh, Certainly the the discussion as they're drawing up the papers for the plea bargain and Daniel tells the real story and then lies about um, all of that so that he, he can sign off. Um, very, very powerful stuff. And they somehow managed to break it up really well with the commercial break so that the two segments um, felt like their own pieces, which was very well structured. I gotta say, I'll preface this by saying I think that Rectify still is one of the best shows on television, and yet I don't think that this is a superior season to season one, because in many ways this feels a little bit more plot-driven, which is not to my liking, and the ways in which we leave some of the things here seem to focus on that aspect. There's a lot of good character stuff in here, certainly, I think, and especially Amantha, who goes through various changes, and I love the flashback that we got with her. Uh, visiting Daniel, and I think that she's in a very interesting place, but most of the rest of it felt a bit too plot-driven for me for Rectify. Yes, and I see what you're I see what you're saying, and definitely the second season has been much more plot-driven, but I think that's also just some of the inherent uh, baggage that comes with the season two. Season one was only was the first week, but you can only do the first week for so long. And uh, after a while, you the realities of, well, what's going to happen next come into play. If you're going to be honest about these people's experiences, you could have, you could have everything just kind of wrapped up off screen in a tidy bow. And so he's not going back to jail. And so therefore we can just continue to explore his experience as he adjusts to life. You could continue to do that. Yes. But then that I would be annoyed about the, by the convenience of that. So, and I do think those, there were plot elements in season one. They were just by far the weakest point. So when we have, you know, the, the sheriff and the different, you know, the, was it the Senator or whatever in, in season one, that's definitely the weakest part of the show in season two, the sheriff character was much better. The Senator character did not improve as far as I was concerned. And, um, that's a big thing for them to fix for season three. So glad that there's a season three coming, but, um, yeah, I think that's also just some of this just comes with the show continuing their story moving forward. Amantha eventually, she, she needs to get a job. She's, you can't just spend all of your time with your family. Eventually the realities of how are you going to pay for that picnic you're going to have in the park with your brother come into play. So while I don't disagree with that criticism of this season, I don't really know what other way they could have gone that would have also felt honest. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense to me. So I guess my problem there is just kind of in the 
inherent structure of the narrative, which I guess I shouldn't have a problem with. No, it doesn't make it any have... less valid of a complaint or a criticism. And not even it's not even a complaint; it's a criticism of this season. This season isn't as good, and here's why: it's still right. fantastic, but it's, it has to deal with some of the, it's. It's like it often happens when you have a build up to an amazing cliffhanger, and the build up is amazing, but then the next season you have to work your way out of that cliffhanger. And you're left with all these other elements that you have to kind of figure out. So I would say it's maybe a similar thing to that where, you know, season one really got to revel and indulge in the the specific immediate reactions of Daniel to his li- himself and his life outside of that room, outside of death row. And season two isn't wasn't able to do that. Yeah. And in this episode, also, um, Jared actually got something to do that was useful. So he's no longer the Chris Brody of the show, which is good. Um, <laughs> hey, so again, karate master, man. <laughs> a lot of good character stuff. It's surprisingly with some really peripheral people. Man, John always looks so miserable and exhausted. And I know, like, as doing the job that he, he does and having to work with people on death row, it must just weigh down on him all the time, but good job on the makeup and the performance there because he looks dead scene to scene. And I love that he doesn't just let her break up with him. I, I really appreciate that, you know, that, that scene and, and her awareness that she's defined so much of herself through this, this ordeal with getting her brother out that now she's not really sure who she is. And um, and her pulling back from him and being, you know, tentative or whatever, I, I completely believe it. I thought it was a good performance from Abigail Spencer. But I also like that that he's also, he's not willing to just accept that at face value. And um, I look forward to you – know, I'm invested in that relationship. And, again, in a way that I wouldn't have necessarily expected in, in season one. Yeah me as well I, I really love this cast and they've done such a wonderful job of making all of the the interconnection very effective yeah. and explored the last thing i'll say is um for me and it's not a final note or anything so hopefully you have something more thoughtful to end our discussion on i i also really enjoyed uh that that look or that interaction with teddy jr where he's just so convinced that everything was fine before Daniel got out and everything was clearly not fine because he had, he didn't want her to work until she was stuck in the house all the time and she wasn't feeling fulfilled. Like we don't, I don't, we don't need to see a flashback to know that that was the case just based on their interactions earlier in the season where she says, you're the one who told me not to work and you're the, you know, clearly she wasn't very, she wasn't happy before uh, but she hadn't been forced to examine that until more recently. And so to have him say, we were happy before Daniel, right? And she just doesn't respond was so the right way to play that. And, you know, and again, complicates matters instead of just allowing everything to come down to Daniel entering the equation. Yeah. And that's a very thoughtful thing to say. I don't know why you would, wouldn't say otherwise, but... Uh, it's not very culminating. All right, as a, as a culminating note, um, I'll tie this back to Legend of Korra very briefly, which had an episode in its season that 
address the fact that it's not where you grow up and, and spend your life that makes a place a home or that creates the idea of home. It's very much the people, the family that you have. So whatever happens regarding Daniel and living in Polly or in Georgia in general, that's not as important as making sure that he still maintains that connection with his family. And that's ultimately going to be what saves him. Yeah. Uh, I could I could watch a spinoff of, you know, Daniel and, and Tawny go into the sunset and she goes to college and he, re, you know, and that would just be completely false and, you know, a cheap cop out ending. But in my head, they could be happy. Um, <laughs> any, uh, any final thoughts on the week in uh, TV or if not, what wins your week in drama? Um. I mean, realistically, the, the episodes are pretty close between Masters of Sex and Rectify, but Rectify gets it certainly for it being a season finale and it still being a very, very good season. Yeah, Rectify finale definitely gets it for me as much as I did love that Masters of Sex episode. Um, I am just very glad that this is a season finale and not a series finale. And now I just got to start pondering my year end of year list because... It's going to be between all those great comedies that we've had this year and so many strong second seasons uh, of of other dramas. I it it's gonna it's gonna be a tough top ten at the end of the year. Uh, well, a few show notes here. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to follow the goings on of Sound On Site TV and, of course, Sean and myself. You can also uh, find us on iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. Uh, of course, we would very much appreciate a rating or review in iTunes. It does help other people find the show. Um, and, you know, or share on social media, share on Facebook. Facebook or, or Twitter. Speaking of, I am at the Televerse, and Sean, you are at Sean Coletti. And uh, Sean, what is our question of the week? Well, you are just moments away from hearing us talk about the wonders that's happened in fishing with John. Um, so I'm throwing it out there, asking for more really genuinely obscure, short-lived recommendations. Because if this hadn't crossed my path, my life would have been worse off because of it. And I know there's like really big um, one season wonders like uh, Wonderfalls, My So-Called Life, Freaks and Geeks, that kind of thing. So not those so much, but the, the really obscure ones that for some reason listeners out there have seen that we need to see. Because Fishing with John, you need to see. Absolutely. Great question. And I look forward to, to hearing everyone's answers. Try to stump us. Stump me with the one season show I've never heard of. I would love to discover some new ones. Excellent question. Okay, well, now we're going to take a break and come back with Tyler Smith of Battleship Pretension and More Than One Lesson to talk about that very show, Fishing with John. 5 a.m. Montauk. Life begins early in this Atlantic coast town. The fishermen wake up excited to be alive. They hope for good weather and good luck. Both fishermen are covered with sores and boners. Fishing with John. Fishing with John. Fishing. John. 
We're back with the Delavish. This is Kate Kalsley, joined as ever by Sean Coletti. And this week at the DVD shelf, at the triumphant return of the DVD shelf, we're glad to welcome Tyler Smith from Battleship Retention and More Than One Lessons here to help us talk about one of the most bizarre and unique and hilarious shows we've talked about on the DVD shelf, and that's Fishing with John. Tyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. And uh, Fishing with John... I had never heard of this, and <laughs> granted, there's a lot of TV out there, and I don't want to sound, but you know, I don't want to sound too egotistical. But I've heard of a lot of it. That's a misspent childhood and lots of uh, looking at stuff online. But I always enjoy when a show falls through the cracks to the point where I have never even heard it existed. I had never heard a single thing about it. Didn't know it existed, yeah. uh, and that was the case with fishing with John. And my previous co-host, Simon Howell, had heard of it. He's more of a music guy than I am. I'm more for the uh, old dead German guys when it comes to my music. But So he knew about it because he knew about John Lurie. But I'm just going to throw it to you, Tyler, and say, explain what this show is because it's amazing. Well, I will say, if you like old dead German guys, you will, as far as music, you will eventually wind up at Tom Waits uh, <laughs> because he does, there are certain albums that he cites uh, like... Uh, uh, Kurzweil as a big influence. That's is that the name? I don't know. <laughs> I anyway. Sure. I don't know. I'll have to investigate it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, I did find this as a function of music, specifically a function of Tom Waits. Uh, I I really fell in love with his music. Uh, probably sophomore year of high school, maybe junior, and just couldn't get enough. And he was just such a unique musical presence and as time has gone on oddly enough the even though anytime he releases an album i'll buy it but since then i think i've i've not necessarily moved past him i still love him but uh but i'm not sure if i'd say he's my favorite artist anymore but um but he did open a lot of doors for me because he really ventured out into other forms of art and so i know that he he acted a lot and so just his his unique presence caused me to seek out a number of movies that he was a part of, and then of course that got me into uh, Jim Jarmish, and then Jim Jarmish gets you into John Lurie, who it turned out I was already into because I was such a big fan of the Get Shorty soundtrack, uh, which he was a big part of, and so it does it is appropriate that I would, and uh, John Lurie played sax on. Uh, a track in uh, Rain Dogs, Tom, the Tom Waits album. So it, it's very incestuous, like everybody's working with each other. And so uh, it was only a matter of time before I found Fishing with John. Uh, and what's more is, uh, I mean, I had heard about it. It was hard to find for a long time. I think I found, I don't know, I think I found like a VHS copy or something like that at a video store in Chicago. And I watched, uh, there are six episodes, I watched them with my BP co-host, David, we lived together at the time, and we watched one, and we just looked at each other and said, do you want to watch all of these tonight? And uh, the answer was yes, and so we watched them all in one night, and then, much to my surprise, I saw that it had been uh, released by the Criterion Collection uh, early on, when they really just started getting into uh, DVDs. Uh, if you look, you'll see that it's like two logos ago. Um, and so, uh, I don't know if they're going to reissue it, um, uh, on Blu-ray or anything like that, but, uh, I do own it on DVD and it's one of the best decisions I ever made. Not merely because I have access to the show all the time, 
But every episode has a commentary track by John Lurie, which is almost as in, uh, entertaining. Uh, and then it has a, a, a music – I believe it has a music video by uh, the Lounge Lizards, which is uh, John Lurie's uh, jazz band. Um, and so it's just uh, it's just so much fun, and I I can't talk enough about it. And I am of the opinion that, weird though it is, I'm of the opinion that anybody who watches it will enjoy it. But I might be I might be uh, a little off there. What do you think? You just saw it. Well, I have already been you know rather effusive with my praise, but uh, I should have been more specific. Would you tell the listeners, like myself, you know, two three weeks ago, who had not seen have not seen this or perhaps have not heard of it, what it is? All right. Well, um, anybody who might be uh, you know younger than than the three of us, they might not know this, but for a long time, uh, you would just be scanning through uh, channels on your TV, and on any number of channels, you could find these super boring fishing shows. And uh, from what I, I've talked to people about this, and from what it sounds like for, for younger audiences, that's not, it's not really a thing anymore, or at least it, it's a thing that you, it, it's very specialty now, and so you have to find a very specific network to find it, whereas before, it was on any number of public access channels or whatever. This would be uh, like in the 90s. Uh, yeah, 80s and 90s. 80s yeah. and 90s. Um, and maybe even on uh, on like PBS. It was uh, it was like Sunday afternoon programming. It was that kind of thing. So uh, so John Lurie, who was a musician and an occasional actor, uh, he watched those shows and thought they were hilarious. But of course, they're not meant to be hilarious. He just and they always had uh, a narrator talking about what they're doing, but what they're often doing is just sitting in a boat, uh, occasionally maybe catching a fish. And so he thought it'd be funny to do his own version of this, go to locations that he's always wanted to go, basically on somebody else's dime, with his celebrity friends, and, uh, and just make this weird, absurd fishing show. And so that's what he did is he got funding from a place called Telecom Japan that was looking to put money behind anything. I believe it showed on Bravo. I, I think that's where the where you found the show. And so they uh, they paid for six episodes. And I believe they only really interfered in the content once. Uh and that is the Matt Dillon episode. They wanted Matt Dillon, who uh, John Lurie was friendly with but was not friends with. Uh, he wanted Flea from the Red, Red Hot Chili Peppers. But they said, well, we would like a bigger star. And Matt Dillon at the time was huge. And so uh, so John Lurie said he would he would do that. And uh, you can tell when you watch that episode that the, the banter isn't quite there. But anyway, that's uh, that's for that's for later. Um so yeah, he got this funding from Japan and made this little six-episode series. Uh, he said that he, he said in the commentary tracks that he wanted to do he wanted to do another series of six, but just couldn't really get it together and got too busy with other things. And so we are left with this beautiful little three hours of wonder. Um, and uh, I I can't speak highly enough about it. Well. Uh... I'm, there are many things to uh, to break down about this show. It's it's a lot of fun, as far as I'm concerned, at least. But but Sean, had you heard? You're you're more of a music guy as well. Had you heard of Fishing with John? Not a single word. And and I am 
for the rest of my life indebted to Tyler for having us watch this. Uh, will anybody who watches this really enjoy it? Maybe. I question that. But I absolutely did. Anybody who is at all familiar and comfortable with uh, the comedy style of Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job, I think is going to feel very at home with Fishing with John just because of some of the stylistic similarities. It's so... The editing is wonderfully bad and yet this is shot perfectly and it and at times it's also strikingly beautiful mm -hmm. uh, whether that is because of the locations that they are at um or what uh, the, the cameraman chooses to linger on but yeah the this absolutely hit me at the right time which was kind of like on the precipice of sleep so i was already mildly insane um and then i ended up watching all of them regardless of having to sleep so this, uh, we got things to talk about, but that's my intro to this. And I think it's great that all of us first saw this as a marathon because I did the exact same thing where I was like, okay. And, and for some reason, I thought that they were an hour long each episode. So I was like, okay, let's start this. I think we're recording in about, I had messed up the initial recording time. So I thought I was on a deadline. It's like, I better make sure that I watch these. And then I realized just like five minutes in that actually no I had a whole other day and there was no rush at all and I had these other things I should do but that first episode just I think for me the the number one thing John Laurie uh, is is so much fun as the host and the guests are Jim Jarmusch and Tom Waits and Matt Dillon and Willem Dafoe and Dennis Hopper who does a double episode at the end of the season and they're great and really fun and like you say Sean the some of the the imagery is absolutely gorgeous. There some of these, especially I distinctly re remember a few like sunset shots with the guys in silhouette, and you know there's some really gorgeous scenery. And I'm not even going to give it to the music because the music is fantastic and hilarious, and I absolutely love it. But the number one thing for me about this show is the fantastic voiceover narration oh, by yeah. Rob Webb, who people will know as the voice of the 60 Minutes uh, promos. Ah, oh, it's, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> These are horses. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Okay. All right. So here we, we're, we're delving into one of my theories of good comedy. Uh, and it's very specific, which is it's funny to have people... Uh, who sound very official saying silly things. I don't even necessarily mean inappropriate things. I mean just straight-up silly things. Um, I'm reminded of a, an episode of uh, Saturday Night Live where they had a, a commercial parody for uh, Old Glory Insurance uh, for, old, for uh, older people, and it was to insure you against robots. <laughs> with Sam Waterston. With Sam Waterston. No more, nobody more official than Sam Waterston. I mean, he was the he was the face of Law and Order at the time. He's trustworthy, and he is selling this with complete sincerity. I think I love it. It's the best. And uh, but I probably got started on that idea with uh, 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 you and I. We were talking uh, before we started recording about uh, video games in the '90s. There was a game series called Space Quest. And the great Gary Owens from Laugh-In, he was the narrator on that, and he was just, and he sounded very official, but of course the whole time he's just making fun of you, the gamer, and the main character. Uh, and I thought, man, that's great. That, it, I, I couldn't get my young mind around it, that like, no, this is, how could this voice be saying these things? 
and it was only cemented, if not, you know, uh, if it, if not an actual better example, to have Rob Webb, who, who's spot on. That's the thing is, you know, uh, John Lurie went through a lot of people until he found just the right guy to, to capture the tone, this very dry tone. And he's got Rob Webb saying, like, uh, d- doesn't he say something like, Tacho has wooden legs but real feet? Um, I think he says something like, uh, oh, well, and of course, then there is the maybe the best one and the one that is best known, which is there's a in the Tom Waits episode. Oh my gosh, I love it! In this Tom in the Tom Waits episode, John John and Tom are just you know baiting their hooks and all that, and then you just hear Rob Webb say, "I'd love a bite of your sandwich." <laughs> now. The implication being that the mic picked that picked him up saying that to I would venture to say a guy in the booth. Now, of course, that was a line given to him to say, but it needs to be like no attention is called to it. You don't even have him saying, I'd love a bite of your sandwich. Oh, is the mic on? It's not that. He just says it and that's it. <laughs> it's there if you want it. We just take a moment and do some of these because so many of them are brilliant. That one especially and also I think this is John's best show. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, when he ends the Willem Dafoe episode by saying that they've starved to death and then starts the Dennis Hopper episode. First time you see him on camera, oh, I was wrong. John's not dead. <laughs> or that, And then uh, in the Jim Jarmusch episode when he says both fishermen are covered with sores and boners. And boners. <laughs> yes. And also finally at the kind of towards the end of the Dennis Hopper two-parter, it's – you know, actually, giant squids might not exist. <laughs> That's a theory. Yeah. Uh, such, such an integral part of what this series is, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, and, you know, when you want, and I, I do suggest if you guys uh, get access to the to the uh, DVD, uh, watching the commentary, because John Lurie, I mean, this is the stuff he left in. The stuff that he gave Rob Webb to say and then <laughs> took out is in itself. I, I feel like, oh, man, what a bummer. I would have loved that because he really wanted, by the end, he really wanted to turn Rob Webb into a, like a real character who uh, resents the, the fame of the people on the show. Uh, and so, like, for example, there's a, a part where Dennis Hopper and, and John Larry are out uh, in a boat pretty much at night and you see them looking up and they're saying like oh there's no stars out tonight and then you get rob webb apparently saying yeah except for the ones in the boat uh (laughs) which would be wonderful i would have loved that um but but that's the thing is that's when it would have turned that could it it would have then turned on it would would have looked unprofessional on the part of uh of the character of the narrator so i think he was right to leave that out and just have the guy say everything very straightforward and it just that the show is great in a lot of ways, but I think that is its real stroke of genius, and that is what sells the concept. Well, and that's these lines are so hilarious, and they're exactly the kind of thing that I think uh, viewers, especially younger viewers, might think were improved or were just off the cuff. People just kind of. Uh, going back and forth and seeing what sticks, but they were all very specifically crafted by yeah. John Laurie. And uh, there's this trend sometimes in, in comedy in the past 
you know, 10, 20 years to, to think that if it's loose or if it's these kind of ridiculous one-liners, it has to be improv or that that has somehow a, a more uh, effective or more honest way to get to some really great lines. And that's frustrating to me because I, I know how hard writers work to find just the right thing. And this is a prime example. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there are some things that are, you know, that, that, uh, that are sort of said by the people on the series, uh, kind of, um, uh, impromptu, but so much of the series is basically scripted, if not, uh, just a, a basic outline, like the, uh, the John Larry Willem Dafoe episode where they're, uh, ice fishing, um, and the idea is they're not catching any fish, so they're going to starve to death, which is, of course, ridiculous. But so much of it was just was just uh, not at all, was the exact opposite of what was happening. I mean, John in the commentary says, like, oh, yeah, we were catching tons of fish, uh, but that didn't really fit the narrative. So we just had to show that we weren't uh, catching any. And so that and then, you know, there's a scene in the Tom Waits episode where he decides he's going to put a fish in his pants. Um and that is something that he had decided on their on the way to Jamaica. He says, "I I, I think there's going to be a minute where I put a fish in my pants." Uh, again, apropos of absolutely nothing, um, but it's just, yeah, like this was a planned out thing, uh, and I mean, obviously, the silliness of it. Not every, I, you know. You know that certain things had to be planned out in regards to the episode in which they're theoretically, you know, starving to death. Um, but yeah, it is it is a a very well structured show. It makes it does make me wish that that John Lurie uh, had been at the helm of more um, TV or filmic um, endeavors because he acted a lot. He did a lot of narration and that sort of thing. But I think this is really the only thing, aside from, I think, occasional Lounge Lizards music videos, I think this is really the only thing um, that he was really in charge of, either on TV or in film. And I think that's, I think that's too bad, because I think he had a really interesting comic sensibility. Well, I want to move us on before we run out of time here, because I think it would be easy for this to turn into the Chris Farley show and to just keep mm -hmm. quoting stuff, because there's a lot out there. For those unfamiliar with the show, there's a lot <laughs> to enjoy. Uh, but I, we got to talk about the music, because being unfamiliar with John Laurie, uh, I, yeah, I, I've appreciated much of his work, I find out, uh, found out after the fact when I looked into him. I found out that, for example, he wrote the the Conan O'Brien late uh, late late show theme, and yep. he got has a Grammy nomination for the Get Shorty score or soundtrack. Like you said, uh, he mentioned his involvement with that Tyler, but uh, so I, I I was not familiar with his music, and so when you're watching the show, and you, listeners will have already heard the theme song <laughs> coming into this segment, which is just perfect for the kind of show that uh, that Laurie was trying to parody. When when you come into the show with that and you you sort of get this very bizarre opening, uh, does not feel like what you expect it to be, and then they're fishing and all of a sudden this this crazy jazz comes in. It's yeah. a completely still, nothing's going on, but there's this ridiculously active, vibrant, uh, and interestingly tonal and dissonant jazz going on. It's just it's hilarious and wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, that is that is kind of his uh, 
his trademark. Um, I, I own a number of the Lounge Lizards albums and then a weird concept album in which he is a non, uh, a not real, a, a fictional guy named Marvin Pontiac. Uh, and then a number of his scores because he did score a number of movies. Uh, and he just has, he's a very, very unique musician, especially, um, I don't know much about jazz. I know a little bit here and there and I know the guys that I like. Um, and I know that one of the theories of jazz, uh, maybe not a theory of jazz, one of the criticisms of jazz, pardon me, is that they, they're they just making it up as they go along and you get a bunch of instruments and none of them are doing the same thing. And, you know, a lot of the jazz that we listen to really isn't that. It's usually pretty well organized and stuff. You get to the Lounge Lizards and you get to John Lurie and, I mean, there's some stuff that is absolutely brilliant and then there's some stuff that's just like, okay, this is... This is rough. This is almost experimental what they're doing and how they're arranging the the music. And uh but I still I still love it. There are some albums I like more than others. Um I recommend if anybody's interested, I recommend the album Voice of Chunk and I recommend uh Queen of All Ears. Uh those are both really wonderful albums that I that I really enjoy. And so but also the the Fishing with John soundtrack is available if you're interested. I, I could easily put this on while I'm driving. You know, uh, put it put it on my laptop. Turn the laptop to face the other direction and just listen to this music while I was driving because it is really fun. When you have more dramatic moments and all of a sudden there's a choir singing in Latin. <laughs> I mean, Sean, any thoughts on the music in Fishing with John? Way too good. You mentioned some of the jazz. I think it was in the Matt Dillon episode um, where they're kind of just cruising along, and I think it's John who's walking to one of the, the edges of the boat. And it's a really peaceful scene if you're just looking at it. It's kind of sunset. Um, it, it seems very subdued. Uh, and it's just utterly the the opposite of what you'd expect from any kind of scoring. So it that was hilarious in and of itself, but also somehow managed to work. The choir, as you mentioned, yeah, also in the Matt Dillon episode, the dance that they do <laughs> and, and the song that's set to that. What? Are you kidding me? And I love that the when the dance is being described, it's being described in an unsubtitled other language. <laughs> we have no idea what the guy's saying. And then it cuts to, to John, who's been sort of like nodding along, saying, yeah, I have no idea what he's saying. It's, it's fantastic. Do we have, uh, do we have, do we want to talk about like particular episodes? Do you guys have a favorite episode? Boy, it's it's hard to say. They're all they're all pretty charming. Um, I think, gosh, that Willem Dafoe episode is pretty great. Partially because Willem Dafoe is in a way that you really can't expect, but should, given what we know about Willem Dafoe as an actor, he is really game. Like he is on board to do whatever the the situation requires, and so he often comes across like a little kid. Uh, on a camping trip, and it's delightful. Um, that was exactly the episode and the descriptor I was going to use. Because oh, okay, he is like you say, he is he is completely game. He seems very excited and enthusiastic to be there, and he is also. It seems like he's the only one who actually fishes <laughs> of yeah. the other people, so, and that that for me at least really helped. But the, you know, but this—that's the thing—is they all have their moments. I mean, the the fish dance is in the Matt Dillon episode. Uh, everything Dennis Hopper is wonderful. Um, Arguing over who died. 
<laughs> and just and like the but I, I'm a big fan of the Tom Waits episode for a number of reasons. But then, of course, I love uh, I love the the Tom uh, uh, the Jim Jarmusch one as well. I like all of those. Uh, they each have what's interesting is if you look at them all together, they do seem to be one complete unit. But each one has its own individual uh, flair and style to it that I really appreciate. Sean, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I'd really like to to rewatch it to maybe solidify or change these initial opinions. But I think as far as we can analyze these as effective episodes of television, the Willem Dafoe one is probably the best. It's kind of oppressive. At least <laughs> when I was watching it, I I felt troubled because of what they were going through. And uh, yeah, just the, the insanity that they degrade into and... Then there's that scene where all of a sudden Willem Dafoe is cooking up something like an elaborate meal, and <laughs> I was just too confused. I thought that that was probably the best episode, although I would say that Tom Waits was probably my favorite of the guests in terms of what each of them got to do. So mm-hmm. obviously putting the fish in his pants, but also just sitting down back against the wall, not wanting to throw up such a lovely breakfast that only cost a couple dollars. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was – he was – very good yeah and i have some familiarity with with tom waits and i certainly respect him as a musician based on what i've heard of his he's a very interesting and talented person but uh talented musician and uh and even actor in what i've seen him in but uh yeah this whole the whole vibe of the show i mean it really comes down to john lurie and what he was able to create it's and when you talk about um sean other other shows that this reminds you of. I've not seen Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job. Um, so I, I can't have that comparison point. But for me, this was so its own thing. And uh, I've seen lots of different shows or, or even sketches that are trying to kind of capture this kind of a tone or seem like they're random, but they're very clearly very structured. And it, it almost never works for me. Um, but for some reason here, it really does. Yeah, I there was another show that I was comparing to Tim and Eric recently. I can't remember, but um, even with Tim and Eric, the comparisons are mostly stylistic. Um, some of the comedic elements, so I I really hesitate to recommend that series to anybody uh, because of how oh I don't even know what adjectives you can use to accurately describe that. I think I think Fishing with John's probably much more accessible. But, yeah, check it out if, if for some reason you have seen Fishing with John, but you haven't seen Tim and Eric. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. Tim and Eric is uh, is a show that absolutely does – is absurd in kind of the same way as Fishing with John. Um, but there's a grotesque element to Tim and Eric that, I, that, is, that turns me off a little bit um, that Fishing with John – and grotesque and also I feel like maybe even vaguely misanthropic. Whereas I feel like Fishing with John is just a celebration of all things, um, silly and otherwise. Because as you said, it's also quite beautiful at times. And there, are, and there are other moments when the music fits the image and you realize, like, this doesn't feel like it should be in a comedy series, but it is. Uh, it's, it's just this fun, positive experience. Whereas when I watch Tim and Eric, if I watch Tim and Eric, uh, I feel... I might laugh, but I often feel worse at the end. I feel worse about myself and worse about people. 
that's certainly the most accurate description and then probably what they were going for. And I think that both of these series accomplish, I think, what they are going for very mm -hmm. well. So, yeah, Fishing with John lacks that grotesqueness. The last thing I will say about Fishing with John, though, is that there were times where I felt bad for the fish. <laughs> when he's, you know, like, that fish is dying and gasping to, for breath and you're laughing at it. Yeah. I don't think about it, Kate, or else you have to be a vegetarian and you don't want that bacon's delicious. It's like, this is the inner conversation I was having with myself. So once I got myself to shut up and just wa was able to watch the show, I it wasn't really an issue for me. But I just, I figured I'd mention it because this is, you know, I don't know how Peter would feel about this episode, this show. Probably not very great. Well, they don't, they don't feel good about a lot of things. Um, and I will say that even a number of vegetarians I know will still eat fish. So what does that, what does that tell you? It tells me they're pescatarians. Exactly. Pescatarian, yeah. Which sounds yeah. like a religion. It does. It really does. Fish can't feel it okay. It's okay. <laughs> well, let's let's move quickly away from that topic so I can continue to eat delicious meats and That's also fish. Uh, any final thoughts on fishing with John, Tyler? Uh, more just to really uh, reiterate what we were talking about is that it is something that, you know, I feel like everybody who is artistically minded in some way, shape, or form, everybody has like I don't know five things that somehow only they know about. For whatever reason, and it's re and it's great. Uh, and then some people, and I know I myself when I was younger, I would cling to those things because they were mine and nobody else had them. And if I gave them away, then that's something that I no longer solely possess. But as I've gotten older, I've realized like no, these are these things are best when they are shared. And fishing with John is one of them. That's a thing that I even though I I had it with with David. Uh, it, it was something that I, 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 I held very near and dear to my heart, but now it's just so damn good. And it's something that literally no one's going to know about unless the people that have seen it tell them. And so, uh, so I, I'm very happy that you guys liked it, but now of course you guys have a responsibility to tell others about it and not, and not just in this podcast, you've got to go out and tell your friends you got to be evangelical about fishing with John. Sean, will you take up that mantle? Uh, I have literally already recommended it to four people, and actually one of them I was very forcible, like, watch this now. <laughs> That's the spirit. Any final thoughts about the show? It's, it is very special and very unique, and you can finish it in the space of two and a half hours. I believe you can watch it on YouTube right now as well. Um, hmm. So there's really no excuse. Yeah, you're going to have a movie night. Instead of a movie night, have a watching Fishing with John night. And uh, I, I, already I was talking about it a little bit on Twitter, and uh, Emily Stevens from the one of the other freelancers over at the AV Club, uh, we started talking a little bit, and within about 30 seconds, she had started a rewatch of, of the show. Uh, it was wonderful. She was live-tweeting the whole thing. It was fantastic. Uh, so, so the people who have seen the show, at least that I know of, love it. And can't wait to talk about it. So why not join their number, listeners? Exactly. If you've listened this far, you got to watch the show. And I'm sure it'll be one that comes up uh, at a future point when we're talking about the shows we've discovered with the DVD shelf. Because I certainly would never have heard of the show, Tyler, if you hadn't uh, wanted to talk about it. So thank you so much for picking Fishing with John. And thank you for coming on the show. 
Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure talking about this show, and it's only a matter of time. If you if you talk about this show for any length of time, you will feel as I feel. I haven't watched that in a while. I think I'm going to watch it all right now. Uh, well, while I queue it up to do just that, as soon as we finish recording here, uh, Tyler, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, you can find me at battleshippretension.com as well as morethanonelesson.com. And I will say that right now through the very end of August at Battleship Pretension, we are putting together uh, a listener and reader-generated list of the top 50 comedies of all time. So what you would do if you're interested in submitting, uh, you would pick 10 movies that you think absolutely belong on that list, and then you would send it to me, Tyler, at BattleshipPretension.com. Uh, we we like getting uh, everybody's opinion. We want it to be a, a pretty big sample size of people, and uh, so that the list can be as comprehensive as possible. And uh, so yeah, that's going through the end of August, and then we'll be announcing the finalized top fifty in September. And again, that's film, so we can't say fishing with John. Right, that's that is true. It has to be. It's movie specific. Fair enough. If there was a Fishing with John movie, boy, oh boy, I'd be the first in line. Well, again, thank you so much, Tyler, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.